How many of you know that with the movie called The Passion, people have been a little confused because they think passion means strong emotion, whereas old Mel's using it in the older form of the word meaning the suffering, where passion was to do with the suffering. So when you speak of the passion of Christ, you're not speaking about his deep emotion, at least not in the form I think Mel's using it, but you're using it in the form of his suffering. So that's the classic uh, way that the word is used. And we're going to look today at the power of that passion. What is it that makes it so powerful? Just one point by way of introduction. You may know if you look at Mark's Gospel, we've been looking at uh, yes, uh, last week and this week, that there's 16 chapters. The 16th is very short. The first 33 years of Jesus' life are covered in chapters 1 through 10. So 33 years, 10 chapters. The last week of Jesus' life takes five chapters. Now that's an interesting balance, isn't it? You look at most biographies, I was flicking through some at home yesterday. Most biographies, uh, the death or the last week of the person takes a page or two. But in the life and the sort of life of Jesus in this sort of autobiographies of the Gospels, uh, ten chapters, thirty three years, last week, five chapters. The last twenty four hours of Jesus' life, two chapters, including chapter fifteen, which is the longest chapter in the Gospel and then in Mark action. Now that ought to say something to you, shouldn't immediately. When you've got a book as unbalanced as that, it says something about the person's life and what they're on about. Which is why we've got the tadpole up there, you see? Um, the idea is you have a, a little tail and a big heavy head. And that's the sort of thing you've got with the Gospel of Mark. There's a, there's a longer tail, probably. In fact, people have suggested, there's an old description of Mark's Gospel that it is a passion story, that is the story of the suffering, with an extended introduction. And that's not a bad way to understand what Mark's saying about Jesus. There's a passion story with a longish introduction. So if you go and see the movie, I'm not recommending either for and against it, but if you go and see the movie, the, the 18 hours of Jesus' suffering from the Thursday night through to the end of his crucifixion takes two hours to watch, which is why it's a, it's a tough movie to watch. But why, why would anyone do that? Why would you have such a focus on the dark events, as it were, the painful events of Jesus' life? Why, why has Mark got this sort of obsession? Why does uh, someone like Mel Gibson invest, invest $30 million of his own, not to tell us the whole story of Jesus' life, but just to get us to focus on the two hours? He very clearly had the resurrection moment, but it's so brief, and I think it's because he wants us to stay focused on the on the shockiness of the pain and the death for us. And I want to suggest to you that there is something very, very useful and very helpful in focusing regularly on the pain and the suffering. And because it will protect us from one of two things. One of my favourite stories, I understand it's a true story in this regard, is um, about a man, married man, uh, reasonably happily married, goes away on a work convention, has a sexual relationship with one of his uh, the ladies that he works with, comes back, decides not to tell his wife, thinks it would hurt too much, why does she need to know, it's not an ongoing thing, but in the end he feels that he ought to tell her. So he sits down one night, across the dining room table, and tells her that he had been unfaithful to her, he had betrayed his marriage vows, that he had done what he'd done. Uh, there's weeping on both sides, she's very upset understandably, she doesn't understand why it's happened, but after a few hours she says, look, we, we can work our way through this, we can we can reclaim this marriage, we can make it work and so she forgave him. And frankly he was surprised at 
he'd been forgiven as it were so easily he thought there'd be a lot more pain uh, directed towards him and more abuse etc which he knew that he deserved and he was blown away by how quickly his wife had moved to the forgiveness side of the equation and one day he said he was sitting at work just thinking how lucky he was to have such a forgiving wife so he decided he'd go home early as a surprise which is a show some self-confidence I guess that his presence would be a blessing but he goes home, buys some flowers and um, uh, lets himself in, can't find his wife in the front end of the house goes towards the back end where the bedrooms are and they can hear a noise and he walks towards his bedroom and he's, he hears her talking and he just looks in and she's praying beside the bed and she's just flooding with tears and the bed is wet and she's just covered in tears and he listens in, which is a bit rude, but he listens into her prayer and she's praying for God to help her to forgive him to help her to get over her anger. She speaks about how angry she is at what he's done and how much it hurts and he listens to her and he ends up, as you'd understand, crying as well. Because what he gained by that moment of insight from seeing her do that was the recognition that yes, he had been wonderfully forgiven and she'd been very kind to him, never thrown it back in his face yet it was costing her so much more deeply than he'd ever imagined. He thought that because it was given quickly it was given somehow or other easily. And we can likewise fall into this problem, can't we, with Jesus? Because the forgiveness of God is instantaneous, the moment that a person turns back to God, that moment he forgives them. So if you're unforgiven at the moment, you turn back to God in the moment of genuine prayer, he will forgive you instantly. But the danger with us as humans is we will begin to think that's because it's kind of easy for God. Looking at the cross will remind us it is not easy. In fact, it's infinitely more painful than any of us here have begun to imagine. So Mark's got this magnificent obsession with the life and with the death of Jesus. Those of you who go to churches where you say the creed sometimes, the Apostles' Creed, which is perhaps the earliest of the creeds that we have, summary of what Christians believe, have believed for thousands of years, you remember how it goes. Uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary. What's the next statement? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now some dopes that some dear beloved human beings have in the last hundred years it's a newish thing have begun to criticise the Apostles' Creed for saying you know this is, this is such a mistake to go straight from the birth to the dead how could you leave out some description about the, the beauty of that life the perfection of it the modelling of it of, of what it is to be human the miracles perhaps but the critique is quite mistaken really uh, and the reason why the Creed does it is because very often Jesus does it Jesus will often describe his purpose in terms of his death. Now once at least he describes his purpose in terms of revealing the truth, but normally when Jesus speaks of his purpose, he speaks of it in terms of death. So some of you will know Jesus' statement where he describes himself like a seed. Now last week we looked at Jesus' story about the seed, but in John 12 he says, I am a seed. And the only way a seed gives life is by dying. If the seed protects itself, it's useless. It's only in death when it's torn apart that the seed produces life. So, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, exactly the sort of perspective Mark has, or not exactly, certainly the perspective Jesus has as we look at these statements about his life and death. How about if we pray that the Spirit of God would help us to really get inside what's happening? Lord Jesus, you promised to be with us when we meet like this and we ask that you would send your Spirit to teach us. But as we look at stuff that in some ways we know, that by your teaching, through your word and spirit, we would be taken deeper inside 
what it meant for you to come amongst us and to die for us. So please show us something of your glory today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, you can see there the five little passages we're going to look at briefly. We're only going to look at really one verse in each. Firstly, the claim. Uh, Jesus is speaking. The context here is that the disciples have been arguing again. So if you see arguments amongst Christians, don't be too shocked. Uh, the Christians, the early Christians, were constantly arguing about who was going to be the greatest. They had worked out that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That, by Mark 10, they got that in Mark 8. They'd worked out he was the King of Kings. So they were, and they were marching off to Jerusalem. They thought to take over, beat up the Romans, throw out the corrupt priests. Jesus gets set up as the king, like, like his great-great-great-grandfather, uh, King David. And they were going to be like that. They were arguing, who's going to be the Minister of Foreign Affairs? Who's going to be the Treasurer? Uh, you know, they were just arguing, who's going to be the greatest? And so Jesus calls them together and, and teaches them by way of contrast. Verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognised as ruler of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. For whoever wishes to become great amongst you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. It's brilliant teaching, isn't it? And even modern business studies have begun to realise that servant leadership, some of the modern books on business organisation, use the phrase servant leadership because they've realised that good, effective companies long term only work if everyone in leadership understands that they're servants. They get it originally from Jesus. So he says, it's not wrong here to say they want to be great. He said, what the problem is that most people don't understand what true greatness is. True greatness is seen. Not in the power to boss people around and have them bring food and drink to your table, but actually to be the waiter, to be the servant. And then Jesus uses the greatest of them all as the model of true greatness. When he speaks of the Son of Man in verse 45, which you'll know is Jesus' favourite term for himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man. Interestingly, it just drops out of sight, except for one verse in the book of Acts. It's an interesting statement about the honesty of the recording, the Son of Man's meaning that's outside the people of Israel. But the Jews knew who the Son of Man was. He's in Daniel 7, and it's not a humble title. It sounds humble. Some people contrast it to the Son of God. Son of Man, humble. Son of God, exalted. No, no, no. Daniel 7, the Son of Man is given all authority and dominion over every tribe, nation and people. And his kingdom will endure forever and ever. It's not a humble title in the Old Testament. It's a magnificent title to be the Son of Man. So Jesus speaks of himself. Even the Son of Man, this great one, who will have authority and dominion over all, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. But this great one came to serve. The one with ultimate authority comes amongst us as a servant, not as a bully, not as someone giving orders. And you see here a magnificent window into the heart of Jesus because he'll explain to you what his service is. How will Jesus serve you? How does Jesus serve the whole of humankind? Look at the the last line there. He came to serve and to give. So Jesus' service will be giving something to you, to us. He has something to give. What will he give? He will give his life. It's like he sort of takes out his life and he gives it. The most precious thing that you've got is your life. Jesus takes his life and he will give it. That's going to be his service. He will give his life as what? As a ransom for many. Now most of you know how ransom works. Something is enslaved, taken prisoner, and in order for it to be released, a ransom needs to be paid. It was very common in the time of Jesus. It happens sometimes still 
in our world and normally people became slaves needing a ransom by being a prisoner of war or just by being born as a slave or sometimes by going into debt. If you got sufficiently into debt the people that you owed money to would sell you into slaves. So I'm sure our banks would do if they could but they can't yet so they don't. But they would actually enslave you. You'd be made a slave to pay your debts. And what would happen would be a certain price would be set upon you by your owner before you could be released. Jesus says, I've come to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. So it pictures you and I as slaves, which is the way Jesus sees us. It's very uh, offensive to many people. It's true enough if you think about it. But in John 8, Jesus speaks about setting people free and they get really angry with him. They say, we're not anyone's slaves. And he says, actually, you are slaves. You're slaves to sin. You can't stop sinning. You're a slave to it. And you're a slave to the guilt and the horror that comes as a result of sin. So Jesus says, I'm going to come to give my life to set you free. So he will substitute his life for yours. You're a slave. He will pay his life so you can be released. If he didn't care enough about you, he'd just let you stay as a slave. But because he loves, he's willing to pay the price. That's what happens if you, um, you know, if I kidnap your pencil and I say, I've got your pencil, your 2B pencil, and if you don't give me a thousand dollars, I'm going to kill the pencil. I'm going to keep it. You may well want to think for well, you want to give me the thousand bucks. If you don't think the pencil's worth it, I keep the pencil. You keep your money. Exactly the same with Jesus. If he keeps his life, we live and die as slaves, which will become increasingly apparent as we get older and then die. That's what Jesus said. I come to lay down my life. So it's important for us to see here that Jesus does not think he came to teach us anything. Here you may need to gently, but politely, and firmly correct even tutors and lecturers, certainly friends and family. They will so often say things about Jesus that, it, that make out that he's just another teacher, like the Buddha, like Muhammad, etc., which for most Australians mean you can ignore him because we don't need to be taught anything about God. He's just a nice teacher for those who want teaching about being good. Uh, you know, that's, he's just saying, be good. That's what he's saying. So if you're good, it's okay. We need to help them see, and sometimes our friends who may be Buddhist or Muslim, that is not what Jesus says he came for. If you think Jesus primarily as a teacher who came to enlighten us, if you're right, he's wrong. Because Jesus keeps on speaking of himself like a seed who gives life by dying. He says, I came to lay down my life, to give my life as a ransom. And we do need at that point to help people treat Jesus with sufficient respect to take seriously why he says he came, which was not to say something to us, but to do something for us. So his claim is that he came to lay down his life. That's the first thing. Now secondly, he fills out what this laying down his life is about from Mark 14, about the cup. They came to a place called Gethsemane. This is the night before Jesus died. Okay? This is the night he's arrested. They came to a place named Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. He took with him Peter, James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it was possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, 
all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will now this is an extraordinary moment in the life of Jesus isn't it because when you read through the life of Jesus in any of the gospels he is a man who is in magnificent control he's surrounded by his enemies sometimes he's surrounded by his enemies who are determined to kill him there and then a number of times in the gospel they are, they are determined to lynch him on the spot and he is as calm as anything at times he's surrounded by these magnificently well trained scholars he's a man in the times of his you know in terms of where you could get educated in the scriptures He's surrounded by these scholars who have actually got together to work out questions to track him and some of them are brilliant and cool as a cucumber. I don't know how cool that is but cool <laughs> as a cucumber they'll ask him these tricky questions that he, that he can't possibly win with and he just comes out with these pearls of shrewd wisdom. He's so calm all the time and yet here he's an absolute mess here at this point in Jesus' life, he is falling apart. Look at the words that he used. They're, they're very strong in the English, they're very strong in the original. Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. When was the last time that you could be described as very distressed and troubled? At this point, Jesus is very distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is so deeply grieved to the point of death and just think about what he's saying he's saying he's feeling so much grief and sorrow in his soul that he says it feels as if it's about to kill me now he's not given to sort of foolish hyperbole when he says the grief is so great in my heart I feel as if it's about to tear me to pieces he means it in some of the other gospels it speaks about his sweat being so profuse that it's, it's dripping onto the ground and yet all he's doing is thinking and praying and yet he is in an agony of soul the likes of which I've frankly never been anywhere near he is overwhelmed and appalled he is frightened and he is grieved nearly to death and you ask what is, what is troubling him? what is his problem? and he makes it clear in his prayer like all wise people he takes his uh, sadness and sorrow to God in prayer and he says Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So he's confident of his relationship with God. Use that word Abba, which is like our word Daddy, Dad. It's a close and respectful word. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He knows that this thing that's coming straight at him, his Father can easily enough stop it. He knows that God is the all-powerful one. Here's his request. Remove this cup from me. What frightens Jesus and distresses him is this cup. He sees his father holding out to him a cup and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Pass. Let, it, let it go around me. I don't want to take it on board here. Now, what does he mean by the cup? Now, we know from the ancient world that the cup was a symbol often for things that could hurt you because basically if you were a king, one of the easiest ways to kill you was to poison you. So the cupbearer for the king or the wine steward for the king was a very important and dangerous job. You're deeply respected to be in charge of the king's cup because one of the ways the kings often put out of action was by putting something in the cup. So the cup became a symbol in the ancient world for that which kills you. So many of you know that Socrates was put to death by drinking hemlock. The way that he was executed was by drinking something. And the Old Testament has got these references a number of times. You'll find one in Jeremiah and one in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 23 
But we'll look at Jeremiah 25. I'll read you some verses, starting at verse 15, but it pops in and out till about verse 29. Listen, just listen to what God is saying here about the cup. Because this is the cup that Jesus is frightened of. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it, and they shall drink, and they shall stagger, and they shall be praised because of the sword which I am sending among them. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more. If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. So the, the cup is, is one of a number of pictures that the Bible would use for the judgment of God. Where God is pictured as putting in the cup his anger, his just anger, not some furious, bad-tempered, grumpy anger, but the just anger at evil, at human sinfulness and violence, at human pride and deceit. And the Bible will picture this cup that God will place the wine of his wrath, a wrath that is as worthy of praise as his kindness because he is angry because he is good and because he is opposed to that which is evil. And so this cup, you see, is presented to Jesus and he's saying, Father, I don't want to drink it. Cup, isn't there some... I mean, he knows it's been heading to this, but he, at the moment when he's about to embrace it, he says, Father, isn't, sure, can't there be some other way that we do this? Do I, do I really have to drink this cup? And clearly the Father is saying to him, yes, you do. Because the answer he gets is not the removal of the cup, but strength to go forward. So it's the cup of God's frightening judgment. So there's, a, as it were, a cup with my name on it, that, that the Father can rightly say to me on judgment day, Ian Powell, drink the cup. It's a punishment and the wrath for your sins. There's a cup with your name on it. And all those cups are poured into this great cup of poison that Jesus asked to drink. This is the ransom price he's going to pay. This is the cost for this, and he has to drink the cup. So he can drink it, or you can drink it. That's how it works. But in his love for you, in order to release you, he will drink the cup. He will pay the price. But just notice here again his distress and his sorrow as he arrives at that point. It is real. This is a real sorrow, a real pain that he felt as he confronted it, as he walked forward to pay the price. And the cup you see leads very naturally to the cry which is recorded for us in Mark 15. This will take us to the very heart of the cross. Uh, Mark 15, the cry, verse 25. It was the third hour, that's nine o'clock. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, hmm, He saved others, can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now this statement from the cross is one of seven 
many of you know that if you look at the four Gospels there are seven statements made in the cross this is the only one that appears in two Gospels it's in Mark and Matthew it's the only one Mark did Mark clearly understands this is the statement which if you understand the statement it will take you to the very heart and centre of the cross but it has caused much confusion in people the confusion thing is almost always caused because they haven't bothered to read the Gospels carefully so you will meet uh, some people um, who, find, who, who are made angry by this. For example, I've chatted with uh, some Muslim students here at the university who have used this statement as an example of the way that Christians have blasphemed Jesus because they say that the Gospels are Scripture. What uh, almost all Muslims will say is it, but it's been corrupted and damaged by Christians. They never tell you what particular verses, but you bring up a verse that, that they find offensive and that's one. So this one, uh, I've met a number of Muslims who've argued this is an example of the blasphemy the Christians have put into the mouth I don't know why we've done it but their argument is no prophet of God no man of God would ever accuse God of forsaking him now there's a number of problems with that most of you will know this is a quote from Psalm 22 which the Quran also teaches to be scripture the Psalms of David so you've got David saying it first and Jesus actually picks up the words of David so you've got two of them apparently committing blasphemy um, People get angry at this. And why on earth Christians would have shoved a statement like that into Jesus' mouth, which has no parallel in the teaching of Jesus anywhere, it just beggars belief. Because the early Christians had trouble understanding this statement too often. We can see that it's in the quote to make in this statement. Where Jesus seems to at one level lose faith. Although he doesn't, because he says, My God. Not just an abuse of some God out there. He is still relating to God as a man of faith. My God. They're the words of faith but he feels himself to be betrayed, which he'll come to. Others have just found this statement so confusing. One silly scholar has written, never were feelings more out of touch with fact than reality. Right. Well, I think it's probably more a case of never have your great intellect being more out of touch with reality. <laughs> but at this point, Jesus is not going, gosh, it feels as God has left me, but he hasn't. Which is what this man has attempted to say. Of course, this is not a statement of Jesus losing touch. Oh, gosh, God's left me. Now he hasn't. That's stupid. Surely I should say. Stupid is too strong. He quotes Psalm 22, which is important. And that's why it's in the form of a question. Because the psalmist, if you read Psalm 22, which is a fantastically important psalm to read, it's an, a quite extraordinary description of a person who is surrounded by their enemies, who are mocking them and taunting them, who are asking, where is your God? You know, you're his. And where there are a number of verses which seem as if the guy's body is being pierced and hurt. That's why it's in the form of... I don't think Jesus is confused as to what's happening. But he, he agonises this expression out, which comes from Psalm 22. And he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He points us to the central reality of what's happening at the cross. The central fact of the cup, the great cost of his pain. So he was betrayed by Judas, he says nothing. He was deserted by his friends, he takes that fairly calmly. He's rejected by his own people who he loved and came to save. He screams nothing. He's flogged and bashed up by the Romans again. He takes that fairly calmly. But at this point, he can't restrain himself. Something happens on the cross that actually causes him to cry out. And it's the fact that his father has deserted him. His father has turned his back on him. His father has cast him out. Why? Why has he done that? Well, at one level, we need to admit that we probably won't ever get to the bottom of it. It seems to me that whenever you get to the very heart of the questions of God's nature and dealing, we run into things where we can describe this, this and this, but 
but how we bring it together I think just our little computers have trouble dealing with that size of a program so you get to the heart of the trinity we know this, we know this, we know this but we can't quite get to the bottom God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, we know this and this but we're not entirely sure on everything get to the heart of the work of God and the cross we know some things but we probably don't get to the bottom of it which is no surprise any God who you can fully understand clearly isn't the God who made the universe it's a little bit bigger than that Martin Luther spent a whole day meditating on this text the whole day, he's a genius he spent the whole day reading this text he's sitting in front of his Bible reading it and his wife offered him breakfast and lunch and ate and that, wouldn't eat anything by the end of the day he just slams his Bible shut and says uh, God forsakes God no man can understand that Luther suggests you can go around this island and get some understanding but you'll never be able to land on it as it were in conquerors because something's happening between the father and the son here uh, something in terms of whether, whether, whether Jesus Christ is being cut off from God the Father and he senses a real experience the Bible says that all of our sins were carried by Jesus you know in 1 Peter it says Christ carried our sins they were donated to him and given to him Christ carries our sins on the, on the tree that's on the cross he takes the responsibility for your sins so elsewhere as Luther says at that point on the cross he became the greatest sinner that had ever lived where my sins my guilt was placed on Jesus Andrew's guilt placed on Jesus the murder that Moses did placed on Jesus the murder and adultery that King David did taken by Jesus the murder that the Apostle Paul did before God saved him where he specialised in killing Christians taken by Jesus it's a horror isn't it and all that is taken by Jesus and as he takes that he is thrust away from God because you know Jesus probably the most common picture Jesus gives of hell is to be thrown away from the presence of God to see it a glimpse for a moment of the glory and the goodness of God and the sense that that's what I've been longing and then to discover that you are not welcome you are thrust away because of your sin at this point Jesus is entering into into hell itself it's a cry from hell I don't understand that frankly but I think we can describe exactly as often happens in science we can describe something part of it but not actually understand it he is drinking the cup he is taking the poison and it is tearing him apart we can understand the physical pain of the death I think more easily than we can understand this we can feel sympathy for the physical pain because we know what physical pain is but we're so dim and hazy in the area of spiritual things that we have trouble understanding it for me I understand that the what's happening to the physical of Jesus is like a parable of what's happening between him and his father. I can understand a little bit of being physically torn to pieces. That's just the doorway into Jesus, to the heart of his suffering. This cry from hell of desolation and dereliction takes us to the very heart of what Jesus is doing. A magnificent man called Reg Hanlon, who died a year or so ago, went to Africa for many years as a missionary and trying to explain this verse to um, people in Kenya he worked this out and I think it's brilliant and it helps me, I hope it helps you um, he said God put one hand at one end of the eternity of suffering that is hell and the other hand at the other end because no one can do that except God he certainly can and the picture is this what God did was then he crushed the suffering of hell 
He crushed it. So it was shortened in its duration, but intensified in its pain. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, takes that. Because he is the Son of God, he can do in some hours what it may take us an eternity to do. He can drink that cup. He can take that pain of that forsakenness from God. And that is what Jesus takes. And he really takes your hell. He really drinks your cup. He pays the price. And that, friends, is why when you look at the cross, you can see the magnificence of God's love for you. That he would love you enough to do that for you. But you also see the horror of your sinfulness. The first time I saw the Passion, uh, about a month or so ago, my overwhelming sense of it was I thought I'd be impressed with the love of Jesus, but the overwhelming way it hit me was I thought, I don't ever want to sin again. Sadly, I have sinned since then. But, I, but it did me a well, I thought, well, if, if the sin, if human sin, leads to that for Jesus, I don't want to do that. If the only way God can find a saviour from your sin is for his only child to suffer like that, sin is much more ugly than you've begun to realise. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, the Bible says, there's no other word to describe the ugliness of sin than the word sin itself. So it's the sinfulness of sin. It is ugly and dangerous beyond your belief. And you see when you see what God is doing to save you from the cup that he has to drink, the cry that he cries out, you can sense the horror of what sin is. You also see the magnificent, inflexible justice and purity of God. Because he will not be a corrupt God. He will not be a corrupt judge who just says to his favourites, oh that's okay, I won't punish sin. He won't do that. He will punish every sin as he promised. And every sin will be paid for, either at the cross or people will pay for it themselves. Either Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? on your behalf and you get tied up with him or you yourself will cry that out one day this feeling like Jesus that the sense of being forsaken by God there's something terribly serious about this at the same time unspeakably beautiful and it's captured I think in one of my favourite hymns allegedly written by a man well it was written by that was allegedly the story is that he went home from church on a Sunday morning a bit bored with the music that he'd sung and was whining to his parents, this was about 250 years ago, about the music in church, and he got a sort of response from his parents, such as, well, it was done us and our parents and our parents' parents, it should be good enough for you, young man, you can do better right from yourself. So he did. <laughs> now, he did tinker with this song, but the, the first thing that he wrote, apparently, was this one about um, when I survey the wondrous cross. And he worked on it a bit, as poets do. But just think about these lines. They're, they're just they are the most, I think, some of the most moving uh, in the hymn book. He says this, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Sorrow and love flow mingled in. Sorrow at the fact that he's cut off from his father who he'd been in fellowship with for countless eternities. The beloved of the father now cast down. And love for us. So in the blood of Jesus, in the suffering and death, you see both the sorrow and the love. It's wonderful. 
and that's what's caught for us in the cry. Well now, point four, we sort of come to some of the consequences that come from this and five as well. What's the result? Uh, what, what's, what indication is there in the Gospel story? What are the consequences from Jesus' death? It says that, uh, verse 37, we're at point four now, the curtain. Uh, Jesus uttered a loud cry, which is probably the one recorded for us in John. Um, it is finished, it is accomplished, and then he dies. And the very next verse tells us a consequence that God did. The veil, or the curtain in the NIV, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now just briefly, what's that about? The ve- Jesus dies, the work is accomplished, he's gone to hell and come back, he's gone to be in paradise, like he said to the thief on the cross, and God's response is to grab the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, not from bottom up, from top to bottom, and he's torn it. A massive, thick tapestry it was. Now there are two curtains in the temple of that day. My own hunch is it may have been both it was probably I think the one that locked off the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was the only person who ever went in there was the high priest once a year after a massive set of sacrifices and the, the, the curtains sort of said in the temple yes draw near to God but don't come too close yes God wants to live amongst us but there is a problem between God and us and the problem of sin don't come too close and don't come without sacrifice. When Jesus dies, the great sacrifice, God rips the curtain in half and says, we're done with that. The whole temple thing is over. All that sacrificial thing is over. The one true sacrifice has been offered and now instead of the, the curtain saying, stay back, it's too dangerous to come close to this God, God has torn the curtain out and says, draw near. And as Hebrews says, draw near with confidence. Not because sin isn't serious, but because the death of Jesus is utterly triumphant. So that's some indication. We can actually pick up another seed. It'd be nice to have another seed, wouldn't it? Uh, we could have the communion with the bread and the wine before the death of Jesus, where he says uh, the bread, the wine, symbolising his broken body, poured out blood, that you may have the forgiveness of sins. So lastly, friends, the challenge, back to the one that we started with in Mark chapter 10. The challenge that Jesus throws out here is twofold. Firstly, to recognise, as I'm sure you do, your dreadful need of forgiveness and the fact that he comes to deal with that. To recognise that. To take on board the fact that you are a person who needs someone to die for you and thank God somebody has. Somebody has paid the price. So enjoy it. Revel in that sort of love. You couldn't be more loved than you are. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you couldn't be more fully and perfectly forgiven than you are. I can't stand it when I see signs for movies sometimes that I say, the greatest love story ever told. I want to say, that's a bald-faced lie. It's a crap love story. There's lots of better ones in fiction and it's nothing compared to this one. I just, I just find that insulting when someone will have some stupid romance. Good love. This, this is the greatest love story. And it's true. And secondly, Jesus tells this verse about laying down his life because he's saying that's, that's what's at the heart of the universe. At the heart of the universe is a great God and he is a God who loves to serve, who does his thing by laying down his life, who gets his reason for being by living and serving and giving and caring. And that's exactly how it is for Christians. What does it mean to be Christian? It means to trust in the one who's died and to get on with learning to live like him. Not 
fighting for top dog position. But just to finish on this magnificent motto, there's a school called Winona, somewhere in Sydney, and it has as its motto, Ut Prosim, which is probably not a good pronunciation of Latin. Ut Prosim. I know the young girl who was going to go into that school in year 11, in the end she said to her mother, I am not going to <coughs> a stupid school that has a motto that says, in order that I might serve. She said, this is, I'm a model woman. We don't serve. Now, sadly, she needed a bit of re-education from Jesus. It's a fantastic motto. In order that we might serve. In order that we might be godlike. So when you go from here to your lectures, to home, wherever it is, greatness is found in serving like Jesus. Because that's it. Gives his life. Let's pray and then we'll go. Father, we thank you for this chance to spend a few minutes camped around the death of your Son. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would enlighten our minds and open up our hearts that we may know and enjoy and appreciate the wonder of your love for us in Jesus.